The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, verse 41. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What think ye of Christ? And that provides our title for our thinking. What do we think of Christ? Now, I don't intend to expound the passage, but just fix on this question. It's the greatest question that could possibly be asked. What think ye of Christ? Of course, the scribes and the Pharisees, they answered it in a hypothetical way, as if to say, when Christ comes, we know that he will be the son of David. The question was meant in a much greater way than that. What think ye of Christ? Christ himself was asking the question, what do you think about me and my status and my purpose? And they dodged that. They had to because they were against him. But the question lives on beyond this occasion. It's for us. What do you think of Christ? What was he about? It's not just what you know about him in a general sense. Most people know something about him, can identify him roughly, historically. But what's your opinion of him? What's your view of him? And to answer that, you need to know really who he was and his purpose and what he set out to do and what it was all for. Do you know the answer to any of these things? What do you think? What is your view? What is your opinion about Christ? So much depends upon your answer to this question. It's the unasked question today. Nobody apart from perhaps a Christian might ask it of you to get talking to you but nobody else will ask you this most vital of all questions because there are many questions rather like this in a sense I don't wish to waste time but I read uh, uh, some while ago a book by a man who lived in Suffolk, grew up in Suffolk and he became a schoolmaster and he was trying to give an insight into the change in society over the years. He was born uh, in the mid-twenties, sometime like that, and he was the child of uh, small tenant farmers who just about made a living, poor people in a rural farming district. And uh, in those days, growing up before the war and during the war, well, you... Uh, uh, you were fixed in what was called your social station. When he was born, he tells the story that his, uh, the doctor who delivered him called out to his parents uh, as he was born, not it's a boy, but uh, you've got a farm boy, a plough boy. He was 
if you like, branded from his birth. Once you were in, born into poor, laboring class, that's where you stayed throughout your life. And so he grew up and educated in an elementary school, completed his time at school at about 15, didn't take any certificates or anything. The uh, schools of the kind he went to didn't do anything like that and uh, worked on the farm. And when he was 18, of course, the war was in full swing, World War II. So he was called up. He was in the army until, I think, uh, 47, 48. He did a very slow demobilization post-war. And he had this idea that he wanted to be a school teacher. But it was impossible. Wrong class. Not sufficiently educated. And he set about night school and so on while he was farming and trailed through his school certificate as it was in those days and the equivalent of A-level. Then he couldn't get a place in a teacher training institution because of his class. It was relatively unheard of. Eventually he did get offered a place and then he had difficulty finding a job. Finally he made it into the teaching profession as he neared 40. And then he uh, enjoyed very much his teaching work, and he wrote first one, then a series of books about it. Well, now you don't think of that, because society has changed, and the world has changed. But what I wanted to tell you about him was this, that post-war, when he started trying to get himself into uh, work as a teacher and the long educational road to that for him, he realized nobody had ever asked him as a lad, what do you want to be? Well, it wasn't worth asking a question like that. If you lived in some parts of the country, most of the country, and you were born to people who followed a particular occupation or line of work, that's what you'd do. You'd go into the pit, you'd go onto the land, whatever it was. Nobody asked you what you want to be when you grow up, because there were no options like that. And this man, when he was a teacher, he wrote, he never met anybody of his own generation who'd made it into the profession, not until he came up to retirement. And youngsters from all walks of life, by this time, had proper access and opportunity. Well, this is not a political discussion. You appreciate this. It's this question. Nobody asked him, what do you want to be? It wasn't open to him. Nobody asks you, what do you think of God? What do you think of Jesus Christ? What is your view? Society today is so ignorant and so unbelieving and so wayward, the greatest question that could possibly be asked in your life, it will never ask you, what do you think of Jesus Christ? Let me say a few things about this question and just talk round the subject for a moment. This is the most important question. There's no doubt about it. There's nothing comes up to this. 
This question leads you to consider the meaning of life, the real meaning of life, the ultimate purpose of life, the destination of life. This brings you to considering such things. You'll never consider those deep issues. You can be an atomic scientist. You can be right in the forefront of artificial intelligence. You can soar as high as you can in an unbelieving world and your philosophy and your belief will be that you're an accident and the whole universe is an accident and it's all coming to an end in a mighty explosion or implosion and we'll all be forgotten and nothing counts for anything and nothing matters. That has got to be your philosophy of life. It's only through asking this question, what do you think of Jesus Christ, that you can be introduced to meaning and purpose and eternity. It is far and away the most important question you could possibly consider. It's the most urgent question because things are happening even while you don't hear it and time goes by or you avoid it and never answer it. Things are happening. You are changing. You are becoming increasingly subject to this material world. You're becoming altogether a materialist. Your whole way of thinking and your tastes and your desires are becoming fixed to exclude God. That's the process that's being worked out on you. You're deteriorating in character. You're hardening and becoming more cynical concerning faith and spiritual things. So this is the most urgent question. And anyway, time is going by. And you could die at any time. Your life always hangs by a thread. It's an urgent question that you settle this. What do we think of Christ? It's the most avoided question. If, if you stop people in the street, would you like to talk about Jesus Christ? They'll, in some way, thrust you aside, invariably. Why is that? Because they're in a hurry, possibly, but usually because everybody is avoiding this question. What do you think of Christ? It sends a shudder through you. This is about God. This is about submission to the everlasting God. This is about surrendering my moral liberty and my self-determination. We sense it. This is about having God in my life to guide me, to bless me, to rule over me. This is the last question I want to hear and I want to answer. It is the most avoided question. Yet it's the most pivotal question. Perhaps a better word would be the most challenging question. There's no other question challenges you so much as this. When 3,000 Jews were converted on the day of Pentecost and the, under the instrumentality of the Apostle Peter who preached the first sermon of the new Christian church, 
The thing that they said and they cried out gave this away, that they were cut, pierced to the heart. To consider Christ is a piercing topic. It moves us deeply if we take it seriously. It penetrates it. It divides us up inside. It challenges the reason, the power of reason, the mind. It challenges our affections. It challenges our will, our volitional aspect. It pierces, challenges, it's pivotal. No question can affect every part of you and your being like this one does. You have to think, do do you need reconciliation with God? Do you need the forgiveness of sin? Do you need new life? And you reason it through. And your heart, have I been a wicked rebel against him? Have I sinned away my years? Have I got to, as it were, weep in repentance and plead with him for mercy and for forgiveness? Moves your heart, moves your will. I will pledge myself to him and live for him hereafter. As nothing does that to somebody than to really understand and respond to this question. It's pivotal, challenging, incisive, comes right into us and convicts us and our pride just collapses and falls before God. What think ye of Christ? It's the most illuminating question. I begin to research. What do I think of Christ? What do I know of him? I open the Bible. I listen to the preaching of him and the explanations. And I become, if the Spirit works in me because I'm sincere, I become illuminated. I understand. Oh, I'm created. And yet I'm a member of a fallen race. The human race is fallen, alienated from God, sinful in his presence. I need his forgiveness. Who is this Christ? He is the second person of the Godhead who came into time, became human, entered into our body and flesh, became our representative. I learned about his suffering and death on Calvary, how God, in order to forgive me, must come himself and take the punishment due to me because the punishment cannot be made to disappear. God is absolutely just. He must punish sin. What love to punish it in himself, in Christ who is God with the Father to come and take our place and suffer our punishment. We're illuminated. It's the most illuminating question. We, we inquire, we research it, we learn these things. And I may come to him by repenting of my sin and trusting in him alone and what he has accomplished for me. I cannot contribute anything to salvation. He must give it to me freely. And he must change my life. We call it conversion. He must change me entirely, transform me, give me a new nature, a new heart, new desires, a new understanding. He must set free my mind 
so that I become his child and love him and understand him. My soul, my spirit must be enlivened so that I can pray to him. That's how I touch him and walk with him. We learn these things. I never knew this, we say. I never knew all this about Christ, that he was God, infallible, unchanging, everlasting, holy, just, so kind and so loving, ready to pay a price for me, so powerful to change me and reestablish me. I see him with new eyes. I never knew all this. And now I'll come to him. This is an amazing question. If it gets into you and if it works in your life and you seek to answer it, it is the kindest question imaginable. It is so kind. Would you be kind to your most bitter enemy? Would you be kind to someone who only lived to hurt you? Would you readily be kind to someone who hated you and slandered you? Lied about you? All that we've done about Christ and to God. We've stolen from him, stolen our lives, stolen his air and his provisions, slandered him, rejected him. Yet this question, what do you think of Christ? It's the most loving question because it brings us to him to inquire, to seek pardon and new life, to feel his touch and his work in our lives, to feel his love, to be saved for all eternity. There's no question like this. Why so short? What think ye of Christ? Yet it is the most amazing question of all. What do you think of Christ, dear friends? What do you think of him? Over 4,000 years before he came into this world is the first prophecy of him in the Bible. It's in the book of Genesis. How he would come, a saviour would come, a deliverer from sin would come, to the human race. Also in the book of Genesis, you get the history of Abraham and the patriarchs. And God promised them, promised Abraham, he'd have a great descendant. And that descendant would do such a work that all people of all nations of the world would be blessed and helped by God and restored. And more and more is told about Christ in these prophecies. And then Isaac and then Jacob, they had the same promises. The great promises forming way back in the earliest books of the Bible about the great descendant of Adam and of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob who would come. And every time he's predicted, prophesied, promised, a little more is said about him. It is amazing, astonishing. And you come down, well, Jacob, he speaks wonderful words. 
he says in one place that such and such and such and such until he that will come comes and those are great words because that's how those ancient men of God those patriarchs thought that's what God had revealed to them that way down in human history a saviour would come of course we look back now he divides BC, AD, right in the middle of world history, the Saviour comes to provide salvation for all who believe and trust in God's mercy and repent and seek him. He has paid for them to be forgiven. As you go on to Moses, now you're speaking over 1,400 years before Christ came. And there's Moses also many times predicting Christ who would come. God will send you a prophet in many ways like unto me of Israel answering to the same things, a lawgiver and one who will set you free to whom you must listen. And so it goes on. And the Psalms are just full of ridiculous predictions of Christ everything is there and other passages of scripture his birth where he would be born which town he would be born in how he would be born by a virgin birth the circumstances surrounding his death his life his miracles his ministry how he would preach what he would do how he would live as a poor man in spite of his great accomplishments and healing ministry which could have earned him thousands and thousands. How he would be rejected, how he would be arrested. It's all in prediction down the centuries. How he would be flogged and suffer and be spat upon. How he would undergo trials. It's all there how he would suffer and die, why he would suffer and die for our sins. Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, long predictions spelling out every stage of his suffering and the purpose of it. This is unprecedented. No one has ever been predicted. Life, work, ministry, purpose, achievement spiritually like Christ. When you start to read about it, you become amazed. Why didn't anybody tell me this? Why didn't anybody tell me the divine nature of this extraordinary inspired book of God? Why did I not understand these things before? And so it comes on to the prophecies of the forerunner, how he would be announced by a voice crying in the wilderness, John the Baptist and so on, until he came and fulfilled all the ancient promises and suffered and died for sinners. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Saviour. What do you think of Christ? Clearly, obviously, irrefutably, the Son of the living God, who came on this great and utterly unselfish mission 
to save lost men and women? What's your reaction to him? What do you think of him? Everything depends upon this for you. To recognize him and his greatness and his kindness and his wonder and his work. To recognize this is to begin to feel your great need of him. I can't go on without him, without his forgiving love. You see your need of him. You repent of your sin. You cast yourself upon him. You ask him for new life and mercy and forgiveness. You trust in him alone. You don't say for a moment, Oh Lord, I need forgiveness. I bring some good works of my own to put into the mix, into the pot. You realize that's no good at all. You're lost. You've sinned against him. You've thrown away your soul. You need him and his power to save you and his dying for you to take away your sin. If you're not interested in this question, if you make a negative kind of response to this question, what think ye of Christ? Nothing at all. Well, I'll tell you the history of the remainder of your life. You will be entirely 100% subject to this material world. That's all you've got. That's all you'll have. You'll be entirely 100% subject to your circumstances. Whatever happens in life, you're a victim. You're a subject. Your circumstances will shape and influence you entirely. Nothing more. No help from God. No deliverance from God. No blessing. No guidance. No overruling in your life by him. Your sin will more and more dominate you. Your character in different ways will increasingly decline. You will be more and more programmed by all the programming of this present society. You'll believe everything it says increasingly. And of course, you'll fade and die. And you'll go before God then as a rebel against him to give account of your life. What a tragedy. With Christ, all things are made new and your life becomes a life of discovery, a life of learning, a life of worshipping him, a life of proving him in answered prayer, a life of advancing in godliness, in character, a life of anticipating all that he'll do for you and with you, a life of serving him. It's so different. What a question. What do you think of Christ, the Lord of glory, the saviour of the world? What do you think of him, friends? What do you make of him? Nothing. It's tragic. My Lord 
and my God, like Thomas, the disciple of old, when he really grasped who he was, my Lord and my God. And he becomes yours, and you are his, and you love him and prove him and know him throughout life's journey until the last day. This is the question. What do you make of Christ? What do you think of him? Let's pray, dear friends. O God, our gracious Heavenly Father, we ask that thou wilt so work in our hearts that we grasp the wonder and the majesty of Christ and his amazing accomplishments and what he has purchased for lost sinners in redemption. Lord, come and enlighten our minds and help us and draw us to him that we may know him and find him and have him and love him and worship him. Oh, Lord, come, show us Christ, reveal him to us, we ask, and we ask it in his name and for his sake. Amen.